0: The word dharma means the truth, the nature of things, the way things are, natural law. It also means or refers to the teachings of the Buddha. And the two great wings of dharma practice, the wings of wisdom and compassion, and both of these are needed on this great flight of awakening. Without wisdom, we might have compassion for the suffering in the world, but we won't particularly understand its causes or have an effective means to alleviate it. On the other hand, we might have wisdom and insight into the nature of suffering. But if we don't have compassion, we won't have that motivation to actually act on it and to do something about it. So tonight I'd like to talk about compassion, what it is, how it arises, how we can develop it, and also how we can manifest it in the world, in our lives. As you know, compassion is that strong and deep feeling that wants to alleviate suffering, wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. Compassion is that power or motivation in the heart that really moves us to take action. And we can see when we look at the life of the Buddha, it was compassion which motivated him as a bodhisattva, as a being working towards enlightenment, it was compassion that motivated him over these countless lifetimes in his quest for Buddhahood, for awakening. Compassion arises when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering, both our own and others. The Dalai Lama expressed This very clearly he said, compassion and love are precious things. They are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple. But they are difficult to practice. Compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but they are difficult to practice because we may want to be compassionate and perhaps often are compassionate but it is not always easy to open to the suffering that is present Now, just as you've seen in this week it's not always easy to open to the suffering or the pain in our own experience and we don't necessarily all the time Want to or choose to be with the pain of others. There are very strong tendencies in the mind that in the face of suffering, our own or others, these strong tendencies keep us defended, you know, or withdrawn or indifferent. You know, we become apathetic. I want to share with you two stories, just illustrating these tendencies in the mind. One is a Carol story, since she's not here tonight, (laughs) feel free to tell it. (laughs) Some years ago, uh, she was in the hospital having surgery, and the doctor came in and was trying to give her an IV, intravenous, you know, something. And he couldn't find the vein. So he was just kind of poking and poking with the needle. And if if you've ever had that experience, you know it's very uncomfortable and painful. So Carol was in quite a lot of distress as he's poking the needle, not finding it. And I guess she showed the distress on her face. And all the doctor said was, what's the matter? It doesn't hurt. And it was just an example of how, here in that situation, just closing off to the very simple experience of someone suffering, you know, just couldn't open to it, or couldn't feel it, or wasn't aware enough to be with it. Mm -hmm. What's the matter, it doesn't hurt, it was obviously hurting. So we do this in many different ways. This other story is, is an old favorite of mine. It was told to me by a friend, and the friend was describing a situation with his grandfather and his father. Okay, So his grandfather and his father were driving in a car on December seventh, 1941, which was Pearl Harbor Day, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. So they're driving along, the news comes on, you know, the Japanese have just bombed Pearl Harbor, and the first thing that his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, World War Two would be a big one to keep out. You know, don't, don't disturb things. <laughs> so it's a funny story. But it's interesting to see. We may not take it to that extreme. But we have the same tendencies. You know, so just as an experiment, watch your mind the next time you come close to a situation of suffering. It might be some pain in the body. What does the mind do with it? It might be some emotional distress. You know, it might be discontent, or fear, or jealousy, or unworthiness, or sadness, or depression, whatever. It might be some emotional distress. In the face of that suffering, what does the mind do? It might be an interaction with a difficult person. You know, or a situation of suffering in the world. What happens when we come close? And it could be either in person or now, in these times, it's often through the very vi- vivid images in the media. You have tremendous suffering in the world. Watch what the mind, what the heart does. Do we feel uneasy? Do we withdraw? Do we numb out? You know, this is just too much, I can't feel this. Or do we stay open? Can we let it in? One of the most striking um, times of this was just after 9-11. And I don't know what it probably before seeing some of the images of the World Trade Center and watching it on TV it was so hard for me anyway to really comprehend to really let in the magnitude of what was happening you know because we'd seen so many movies where things like that happened and somehow just to take it in to take in the reality of it on a much less uh, vivid scale. I want to read part of a poem by Mary Oliver, who's really a wonderful American poet. She read, she wrote, this is called From, Be- From the Poem Beyond the Snow Belt. So over the local stations, the radio stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down, while shouting children hurry back to play. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north, to us, is far away. A wild place never visited, so we forget with ease each far mortality. I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And that feels so appropriate, especially in these times. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So the question for us is how can our hearts stay open given the magnitude of suffering that exists in the world? Is it even possible to open to it all with compassion. This question or this challenge is not a theoretical one because it's not enough (coughs) to admire the qualities of love and compassion, to admire them from afar as being noble ideals somehow that are removed from our daily lives. It's not enough just, yes, love and compassion is a fine thing, and then not investigate how we can really bring it into our lives. It's not enough to simply practice love and compassion in the isolation of a meditation retreat. Our practice really is about the transformation of consciousness that makes openness of heart possible. How can we transform our hearts or minds so that we can stay open? This is the challenge of our practice and the path. There's a Tibetan doctor, his name is Tenzin Chodrik, and at one time he was the physician to the Dalai Lama. There's an article in the Harvard University Medical Journal from quite a while ago, this was in 1989, written by him about his experience in Tibet. He was imprisoned by the Chinese government in 1959 and he was held prisoner for 21 years and he said that For nineteen of those years he was tortured physically and psychologically daily, and that his life was really threatened daily, for nineteen years. But in the article, he describes four points of understanding that made possible not only his survival, because people actually survive in terrible conditions in many different ways. So he described four points of understanding that allowed him not only to survive, but actually to come out of that time with his mind and his heart still open. With a, with a mind and heart that did not close down, in fear and in hatred. So I want to talk about these four points um, that Tenzin Chodrik wrote about. Because they really relate to our own lives and to how we relate to situations of suffering. So the first of these points was his insight or his understanding of how he could hold his situation in a larger context. And he said that he saw that even in the worst, the most deplorable human situation, some human greatness could be accomplished. Well, that's an amazing perspective. He saw that even in the face of great suffering, He could practice love. So I think we need to ask ourselves, in times of even much less suffering, I mean, that is really an extreme, but just in the course of our everyday ordinary lives, in the face of much less suffering, can we remember this? Somebody disturbs us, somebody annoys us, Is our reaction annoyance, anger, judgment when we're with a difficult person? Or, even if we have that reaction at first, can we come to that place where we ask the question of ourselves, in this situation of difficulty, what human greatness can be accomplished? Can I enlarge my heart? Can I open to it in a different way? The Dalai Lama would often say, your enemy teaches you patience. You know, and I heard that many times, and I thought I understood it. The enemy teaches you patience. You know, That's, that's what we can learn in those situations. Then one time I had just had a difficult encounter with someone. And my mind was a little grumpy about it. And then the teaching of the Dalai Lamas came to mind. Your enemy teaches you patience. And I thought, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized just in that moment I, I had to smile at my own mind. It's really easy to be patient when no one is bothering us. (laughs) You know, when life is going smoothly, oh yeah, no, I can be patient. It's precisely in those moments when we're bothered, you know, when we're disturbed. That's when we need to ask the question what human greatness can be accomplished, and even if it's a small greatness, like simply being more patient. Can I actually apply that right now? rather than be caught in the run of our own reactions. So this was his first insight. It was enlarging the context. His second insight was that his enemies and the people who were torturing him were human beings like himself. He saw that the guards and the tormentors were people who were also in adverse situations, you know, who would one day pay really a great price for their cruelty. So in the midst of suffering, he understood the commonality of kind of the human experience. It was really the understanding of the law of karma, you know, that all actions bring about results. But those guards' actions would bring about certain consequences to themselves. But what was interesting is that Tenzin Chodric didn't see the law of karma as a vehicle of revenge. He saw it as a vehicle of compassion. You know, if somebody is doing us harm, Our first reaction, well, they'll get theirs. But really we can understand the law of karma as a source of great compassion. People out of ignorance doing all of those things that are causing so much suffering. So his third insight was seeing the importance of humility. You know, forgetting about self-importance or self-righteousness. And he attributed his survival over all those years to be able to let go of those feelings. In our own lives, it's very interesting to notice how often these feelings of self-righteousness you know, can arise in situations that are difficult for us. We're hurt or we're offended in some way. Somebody does something that we feel is not right. So often that's our first response. Even in situations where it's really inappropriate. Just one story which stands out for me in this regard. Years ago when I was my early days of practice in India, you know, as you know, the plains in India get very hot in the summer, so we would go up to the mountains, the hill stations, uh, you know, for the summer months. We friends and I had rented this little cottage up in Dalhousie, which is about six or seven thousand feet, and it was beautiful, and you know, this panoramic view of the Himalayas and I would settled into this little cottage and was doing intensive practice. And then after a few weeks, in a field just below my house, a group called the Delhi Girls <laughs> camped out. And it was like a paramilitary Girl Scout troop. And that was fine. That was not the problem. The problem was that they had put up these loudspeakers and from six in the morning till ten at night, they were blaring this loud Hindi film music. My mind had a few reactions. <laughs> yeah, and I was sitting there, and because it had been so quiet and so peaceful, and there I was meditating, and my mind got so self-righteous about this. You know, how could they do this to me? I came to India to get enlightened, and they're playing this <laughs> music and. You know, for hours, you know, from early morning till late at night. It took me weeks. It really took me weeks to be able to finally let go of that feeling of self righteousness and the anger that it was fueling and just settle into hearing. And it was so amazing when my mind finally let go of the resistance and that feeling of self importance I, mean, I had been writing letters to the mayor and to all the people in the town and you know nobody else was bothered by this I mean it was it was bothering me when I could finally let go it was amazing the, the music was there the sound was there when I stopped resisting it the meditation went fine it wasn't a problem It all had to do with that feeling of self-importance, which was making the problem. It's important to understand that humility is not some contrived stance of the mind. You know, it's not going through the world with this demeanor of meekness. That's not what humility is about. The meaning of it really was highlighted by the writer Wei Wu Wei, who I think was an Irishman who lived in Asia for a long time uh, and had some very deep insight into the nature of mind. He wrote these wonderful books with very short little epigrams, you know, just little, little short sayings of wisdom. And he had one about humility, which I thought really captured the essence of it. He said, true humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. It's not a stance that we take of being humble. Rather, when there's no one there to be proud, when we are really residing in this understanding of selflessness, then true humility manifests by itself. So the fourth insight that Tenantrojit had, which he said really helped him survive with an open heart during those terrible years, it was his understanding which is familiar to us, and that is that violence never ends by more violence. That hatred and vengeance toward an enemy is never skillful, because it just breeds more hatred and more vengeance. And we see this played out in so many places in the world. And we see it today. I mean, just the endless cycle of violence in the Middle East. You know, and the the whole situation in Iraq of how violence just breeds more violence. So these are the understandings that we can reflect on in our own lives because they are the wisdom that really helps compassion to grow. It's the understanding that we can enlarge the context of a situation when we're faced with difficulty can we remember to ask ourselves the question what human greatness can I accomplish in this moment rather than simply be reactive it's understanding the commonality of us all the commonality of the human condition it's remembering the meaning of humility, and not getting lost in feelings of self-righteousness or self-importance. And it's remembering that hatred never ceases by hatred. When wisdom and compassion are both present, they really bring a, a great creative power in our lives because they allow for unusual or non-habitual responses to the world. It's like we see beyond the conventional responses. Years ago, many years ago, I was sitting in a Zen session a Zen retreat with uh, the Zen master Sasaki Roshi who lives and teaches in LA now he's in his 90s and he's still teaching Um, this was many years ago and he, at least at that time was a very fierce Zen master just kind of the classic image and the Zen, the form of a Zen Sashin, it's very formal it's like a pressure cooker and everybody sits together, walks together, eats together. We had to go see him four times a day, and it was the koan method, you know, where you're given a kind of problem, a non-rational problem. So you're given this problem, and you have to go uh, give him the answer. So four times a day, I would be going in, do my bows, you know, say my koan, give my response, and he would just say, he would ring his little bell and he would say, Oh, very stupid. <laughs> yeah. And that was it, that was the whole interview. So i bow and leave, and then the second time, the third time. This went on for days. Every time I came in there was some variation of that. you know I thought I was doing well when he said, Oh, good answer, but not then. <laughs> you know? so after some time, I was getting more and more uptight in this whole situation. So finally, it was like the fourth or fifth day of a week-long retreat, he gave me an easier koan. (laughs) So he said, the koan was, how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? And we had been doing chanting, you know, in, in the meditation hall. So I understood. I mean, I understood what was required. But what perhaps he didn't know, or perhaps he did, at that time, that touched this deep, deep conditioning in me that went back to my third grade music teacher who said, Joseph just mouthed the words. And so my singing career over all these years <laughs> has not exactly been encouraged. <laughs> so I had this whole thing about, you know, going in and chanting in front of the Zen. it's just So I'm back in the hole waiting for the next interview, kind of rehearsing in my mind over and over and over again a few lines of a chant. Yeah, and I was really kinda of very tense and so, ring the bell for the interview. I go in, I do my bow, say the koan, start to chant. I get it completely wrong. I mess up the words, I'm totally off key, the melody is not right. And I was just feeling, I was feeling terrible. It's just, I was feeling totally exposed and naked, and, you know, my heart was so raw. And he just looked at me, and he said, Oh, very good. (laughs) And it was such an incredible moment. I mean, even now, I've told this story many times, every time I tell it, it's like, it was such a meaningful moment, because my heart was so open, that just when he said, oh, very good, it was like he was touching my heart directly. There was nothing, nothing in the way. And so it's just such a good lesson in the possibility of compassionate response and receiving compassion when our hearts are that open, when we can be that vulnerable, when the suffering is just right there, whether it's our own or others. So the beginning of compassion is empathy, is the feeling of empathy. And empathy happens when we can come close to the suffering and we take a moment in the busyness of our lives to actually stop and feel it. You know, we're not rushing on. It might be stopping for a moment to feel a physical pain. It might be stopping to feel the suffering of difficulties you know with another person the difficulties of someone we're close to do we really stop and just feel it feel what's happening might be feeling the suffering of someone's annoying habits at work you know what do we do with it can we stop and actually be empathetic feel what they're feeling or are we just rushing on with our lives particularly in situations where people are behaving badly, even when they may be causing some harm, do we stop and try to feel what's happening underneath the action? Now, what is the suffering underneath it that's causing them to act in that way with the motive of trying to alleviate the suffering, or do we simply rush in with our own judgments, our own reactions? It doesn't mean that we don't set appropriate boundaries, because sometimes if people are acting in a harmful way, it's important in one way or another to say stop. But what's the motive in our hearts? Is the motivation compassion? or is the motivation irritation? There's a great lesson here that we see again and again in our meditation practice and that is that how we feel and how we respond to situations is up to us. Nobody is making us feel angry. And nobody can stop us from feeling compassion. It's all up to us. And so this is the training. Being willing to come close with empathy, with a feeling for the feeling of others, this opens the door to compassion, which takes empathy a step further. Because it's not simply feeling what others may be feeling. It's not simply feeling the suffering that's there. Compassion has within it this strong motivation to act, to do something. Thich Nhat Hanh, the wonderful Vietnamese Zen master and peace activist and poet, uh, He he expressed this so well, he said, Compassion is a verb. Compassion means we respond. Quite a few years ago, uh, Ramdas and Mm -hmm. another friend, Paul Gorman, wrote a book on compassion called How Can I Help? You know, and that title really expresses the flavor of compassion. In a situation of suffering, compassion is that question. How can I help? What can I do? As compassion grows, just in our meditation practice, in our life experience, we begin to engage more actively with the world in responding to the various needs of beings in whatever way is appropriate for us, in whatever way is possible. Now sometimes the compassionate response is just a very small little thing. It may be a small gesture of friendliness or generosity or forgiveness to the people who are around us the Dalai Lama has described a wonderful practice he does he said I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend this gives me a genuine feeling of happiness it is the practice of compassion for those of you who have had the opportunity to see or meet the Dalai Lama, it's just like that. <laughs> you know, you meet him and it's as if he's greeting an old friend. And it feels so wonderful to be on the receiving end of that kind of energy. So can we at least begin to practice in that way? I think it would change how we move through the world. You know, relating to each person we meet in that way. Sometimes we can practice compassion by giving a gift to someone who's being difficult. That would be a challenge. (laughs) Somebody who's difficult in our lives and we give them a gift. I had one friend back in those years of practice in India this goes back to the Late 60s and early 70s. This is a friend from America whose mother hated the fact that he was in India, you know, and practicing meditation. So he would get letters from her saying, "I'd rather see you in hell." (laughs) So can you imagine being on a meditation retreat, (laughs) you know, getting really quiet and open, and you get this letter from your mother. I'd rather see you in hell than for you to be meditating. So it was was pretty intense. So at one point we were in Calcutta with our teacher Deepama, who is this wonderful, wonderful woman, extraordinary being, an extraordinary spiritual practitioner and tremendously loving. So he was telling her this story. She was very poor and she lived in a very poor section of Calcutta. Uh, but when you walked up to her rooms, it was just two, she lived in two small rooms uh, with her daughter, and, uh, but it was just filled with light. I mean, she would, when you went in, she would do a traditional Indian blessing, and she would run her hands over your head and shoulders and down your body, and it just felt like you were being bathed in metta, and It was so wonderful. So this friend told Deepa the story. And she reached under her mattress, which was her bank, you know, and took out 10 rupees, which was a lot of money for her. She was very poor. She took out 10 rupees, and she said, here, buy a present for your mother, and i buy a gift for her. And he did, and it was amazing. Just his responding to all that negative energy with a gift was the beginning of turning the whole relationship around. You know? It would have been so easy to be offended or to be angry in return or you know, to close off. But if we can open to the suffering behind the action, you know, behind those letters, a compassionate response becomes possible. So sometimes compassion is just small gestures. Sometimes compassion manifests as acts of tremendous determination. Is an American doctor whose name is Paul Farmer. I don't know whether you're familiar with him. A book recently came out about his life, wonderful book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And he spent many, many years in Haiti working in the very poorest parts of the country, way out in the countryside, uh, with AIDS and other diseases. And, and the way he worked was so successful it it spread to many places around the world. And just a person of tremendous compassion and dedication. And there was one story in this book about his life which described how at one point he walked seven hours... You know, to treat just two families. And people were criticizing him for that use of his time because he could help, he could have helped so many more people. Uh, So this is what he said in response. He said, If you say that seven hours' walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. And it, just, it just captures something. You know, the tendency of our minds to think some lives matter less, that we respond to some suffering, you know, and not at least practice opening to others. Sometimes compassion is not only manifest as great determination, sometimes it really manifests as tremendous courage, immense courage. Think of somebody like Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, you know, leading the democracy movement being just imprisoned in, in prison and house arrest for so many years and then facing uh, so much hostility, or Martin Luther King Jr. in the States I know you remember from his days, I've seen films or videos, he would be, he would be leading marches, civil rights marches, in the face of amazing hatred. People, people would be so filled with hatred for him and what he was doing. And he was just holding that space of love and compassion. And it's amazing. Tremendous courage. Or the Buddha, you know, motivated over countless lifetimes, not only to alleviate the suffering of particular situations, but to really uncover the root causes of suffering. Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why is there so much pain? Because of the root forces of greed and hatred and delusion. There is no particular hierarchy of compassionate action. Now, the field of compassion is limitless because it is the field of suffering beings. So knowing this, we can each find our own way. There's not, it's not just one way we're supposed to manifest compassion in the world. We each find our own way in doing this. And for some people, it's a very active engagement in the world. You know, we're really people working in the trenches, or out there on the front lines of social action of one kind or another. It could also take the form of living in a mountain cave and really practicing for awakening with the motivation to benefit all beings. Now, how many lifetimes did the Buddha, previous to his awakening, the Bodhisattva, how many lifetimes did he practice as a renunciate? Now, maybe off in the mountains or off in the jungle someplace, I can just imagine people saying, Oh, what's that old hermit doing for anybody? You know, he's, he's really wasting his life. And yet, because of the motivation behind what he was doing, which fueled all that effort and resulted in Buddhahood, we're sitting here today. So be careful about having judgments, about taking a slice of a life, and then judging, is this compassionate enough or not? Because it's really for each one of us to see in ourselves what is our motivation. It could, be, it could lead to great activity in the world. It could lead to being on retreat for five years. And both could be equally compassionate actions. So from one side <coughs> we can see that as we work to purify our own hearts and our own minds, that this will inevitably and naturally lead to more compassion for the world. It will inevitably lead to taking care of others. One of the teachers that Patricia mentioned the other night, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, was one of the great, great Tibetan masters. He said, When you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, when you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. That's a powerful understanding. It's the understanding that compassion is the natural activity of emptiness. The more selfless, the deeper the realization of selflessness within us, it manifests naturally as compassion. It dawns uncontrived and effortless. And this way of practice is expressed very beautifully in a book called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And it's an ancient text by the Indian adept Shantideva. And the Dalai Lama is a great devotee of Shantideva. And he's a a shining example of what that kind of practice does. If you want to read something called the seven branch prayer from this, from this book and it expresses this whole approach of practice of putting others before oneself so like the earth and the pervading elements enduring like the sky itself endures For boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until every sickness has been healed, May I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings who are poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful treasure. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. That's quite a way to live. So it's possible to hear something like that, to hear these teachings, of Shantideva, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. To hear that and to be tremendously inspired by this great, great generosity of the heart. But it's also possible to hear that and feel a bit daunted and feel overwhelmed. You know, Would we ever be able to live with this degree of compassion? with this aspiration to live for the benefit of all beings because it feels so big and so much. I think that in this practice we need a great deal of humility. Now this is huge. To have the aspiration, may my life, may my actions, may my meditation practice be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. So this is a huge aspiration. We need to start really small, you know, really have a great humility with this. And if it inspires us to have the sense, okay, let me plant a small seed. Let me just plant a seed. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the seed of having the aspiration to have the aspiration. Maybe even just the thought of having it is too much. You know, it's too big for us. So we just, well, maybe we just plant the seed. Yeah, that's a beautiful. That could be a beautiful way to live and to dedicate one's life. So we just plant the seed and water it and nurture it. May my practice, may my life, be for the benefit of all. Now the great naturalist, American naturalist Henry David Thoreau, he wrote something very beautiful about a seed. He said, "Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders." Yeah. And it's like that. We, just, we plant the seed of compassion, the seed of what's called bodhijitta, the awakened heart. You know, the aspiration that our life can be for the benefit of all others. So we plant the seed, we water it, we nurture it and slowly and gradually over time this aspiration really can become the guiding principle of our lives and even in those moments when we're not acting from a place of wisdom and compassion because there will be many moments like that when we forget when we're not mindful when we're more caught up you know in greed or in anger or in fear or whatever but even in those moments when we're not acting from the place of love and compassion if we have planted the seed and we have watered it it reminds us even in those moments that there are other choices that there are other alternatives that we can come back to I'd just like to close with one more reminder from the Dalai Lama about this practice of compassion. He said, changes in attitude never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can only be negotiated slowly. It's not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. Well, this is what we do together. We remind each other. We can be more mindful. We can practice compassion. Let's so sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit